Steve, let me ask you a personal question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> do, you have, do you have a mother, Steve? I do indeed. Fantastic. Don't we all? <laughs> yeah, well, yes, we all do, but I'm sure you're a good son and you love your mother, don't you, Steve? Uh, uh, the best. I'm like legendary. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Very good. Well, I got a tip for you. You can really win Mother's Day. Win your mother over on Mother's Day. Cement your reputation as this really good son. Give your mom an Aura digital picture frame. Have you heard of these things, Steve? Yes, I have. They're loaded up with decades of photos. You can just like hook them up to the phone and then you get the photos running through it, kind of scrolling through it. You seen these things? Yeah, they're great. They're really cool. Yeah, and you can get everything uh, and pictures of your mom, pictures of whoever, your family, your brothers, all, all these things. They're a wonderful item. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code word ChinwagPod at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This is Paul Giamatti speaking. And this is Stephen Asma. And this episode of Chinwag is sponsored by BetterHelp. It is indeed, Steve. Let me ask you a blunt question. Do you ever feel stuck, Steve? <laughs> I'm serious. Do you ever feel kind of stuck in the mud? Every day, my friend. Yeah. Every damn day. And then what happens is you get overwhelmed because you're kind of stuck, right? True. As I get older, and I am getting older, folks, I may not look it. You may <laughs> think, oh, he's like Dorian Gray. He's going backwards. Yeah, wow. Wow, he's, he's, he's going backwards. I am getting older, folks. It's hard to believe. The thing I notice is how important it is to maintain a balance. You know, I guess you'd call it work-life balance. I don't think I'm alone here, but therapies help me do this, this balance. It can help you find equilibrium. It can help you feel more empowered in the decisions you make, the boundaries and priorities you set. It's good in that way. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give better help a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. And all you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Sometimes that's hard, right, to find the right person. So this helps. You can change. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with better help. Visit betterhelp.com slash chinwag today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash chinwag. We're back. I'm back. The chinwag. I'm still alive. I'm still alive. Chinwag is still alive. It's the thing that... <laughs> Will not die. It just, it's alive. It is alive. Chinwag yeah. is alive and kicking. And we go hard in the paint here. That's how Chinwag does things. We what go is, hard in the paint. What does that mean? Oh, you haven't heard that phrase? No. <laughs> oh, they, they, it's sort of a basketball uh, oh. sort of reference. It means like we're, 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 it's a fighter show. It's a hardcore show. What, like what we're, we go be? hard in the paint. Because the paint on the floor? Of yeah. The, yeah. The, you go deep into the. Yeah, oh, there's deep I penetration, see. as it were. Has <laughs> no, no double entendre so there So no, no, I understand. Just... No, no, never. This is a clean family show. <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah, this is a clean family show. See, it's a basket. The second you said basketball reference, I was like, <laughs> I'm sorry, wake me, wake me when it's over. I don't, uh, 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 Half our audience, too, just I went know, to sleep yeah, immediately. Yeah. No, listen, basketball's an amazing thing. I just, it's, I don't, I know nothing about it is my problem. I'm not a... It may come What's as your a, sport? A, a it, baseball? May, it may come as a real shock to you, Steve, but I'm not a big, <laughs> I'm not a big sportsman. I know it may come as a huge shock to all the listeners. If I do, yeah, I enjoy. You are well-rounded, though. I, yeah. I would. I think uh, you're. You probably like sports, but you just don't follow teams. No, Am I, I right? don't really. As, again, it's like I don't quite have that obsessive thing of following yeah. it all. That I just don't have that kind of personality. Oddly enough, except for certain things, but I, I do enjoy a baseball game. I like, I like watching a ball game, listening to a ball game on the radio sometimes going to a live game i'll tell you the sport that i enjoy is ice hockey is going to see ice hockey live yeah i like so ice violent very that's what i like great. steve the bloodlust the bloodlust is high when i go watch an ice skating an ice skating it's match a, it's a great game it it's is a great, great game. game did you grow yeah. up playing it at all out there and the no um I, I i have friends though that did um if you and of course, if you're Canadian, everybody plays. Yeah. But where I grew up uh, was not like we were sort of 
like uh, top of Illinois, bottom of Wisconsin. But if you were up further north in Wisconsin or Upper Peninsula, yeah, mm-hmm. everybody plays hockey. Yeah, you know what I think you and I should take up together. We should take up curling. I think you and I Curl- should take yes. You, know, yeah, you and yes. I should take up curling. <laughs> that looks I'm at like- the age where that's the maximum. <laughs> Listen, effort I can it extend. must be. There must be something to it that's difficult. It can't just the be sweeping. like. Well, I guess so. But I mean, I, which I don't understand. It's something about like heating the ice up or cooling the ice down or something like that. It makes yeah. the thing move faster or something like that. I don't. It I look looks at it, absurd. It I mean, I know it's absurd. talented, and I know it's great. It and must I know it's take a real sport, unbelievable level of skill, but it looks ridiculous. It looks ridiculous. Yeah. I yeah. don't know. I'd like to try it sometime. Sorry uh, to all the curlers out there. But. Yeah. No, listen, I don't mean, I don't want to offend any curlers. And if there are any curlers out there who want to write in and explain to me what exactly is going on with the brooms and everything, that would be great. I would love that, actually. That yeah. would be great. And 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 while you're at it, like informing me about curling and about what they do with the brooms, go, go, go to, you know, Apple Podcasts, go to one of these... Uh, yeah, rank is, and review us. Uh, exactly. Give us the five stars if you would. Uh, yeah, what kind of show can you hear? Such yep. great sports commentary as the Because <laughs> <laughs> if when you want your sports news hard hitting and hot, it's the Chinwag. <laughs> oh my God! Yeah, give us give, give us a, give us some ratings. Give us some love. Bang the thing over. Send it off. Text text an episode of the show to a friend right now. Yeah. Yeah. That would know, really help let them us know, out. And let them know that if they want to know more about curling, this is the place for them <laughs> to come. But before we get to that, this is terribly exciting, Steve. We are coming for you, San Francisco. Oh, my God, Steve. San Francisco. This is out of sight. We're going to be at the San Francisco Sketch Fest live January 27th at 1 p.m. at Marines Memorial Theater. Yeah, tickets are on sale now. Go to sfsketchfest.com. And I believe you left your heart in San Francisco. If I'm I mistaken. sure did. I got to go back and find it, Steve. <laughs> it's just lying there, beating and bloody in the middle of the fucking bay. It's sitting there. That's sfsketchfest.com for tickets to see us live. January 27th, 1 p.m. San Francisco. Here's the best part. Here's here's maybe the most exciting part. Tell me. This is the man who stole my heart. He's going to be a guest of ours. That's going to be comedian, author, host of the fantastic podcast, Beautiful Anonymous, Mr. Chris Gethard. Oh, he's going to be amazing. there. Oh, he's great. boy, do I love him. Very talented He's the man. best. Absolutely. So come out and see us. Yeah. Come out and see us, and it's going to be wild and nutty. We're going to talk Ashbury. about all kinds they, of crazy shit. It's going to be like shit. the Haight-Ashbury yeah. in 1967. Everybody's Steve. going to be on acid. The dead are going to come there. It's going to, <laughs> it's going to be like Grateful Dead revival. Absolutely. It's going to be bananas. <laughs> Abby Hoffman's going to show up. Everybody's going to be there. Come on out. Now, before we get on to our, our guest here, I want to just throw in, there's a little, something will come up in the conversation we're going to have that I want to clarify beforehand so that people, because it goes by fast, right, Steve? Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, and, and that is that there's reference made to something called the Museum of Jurassic Technology, which is located out in on Venice Boulevard in um, Los Angeles, California. It goes... It, our, this amazing guest we have it's, uh, discusses yeah. it briefly. It is a... It is a museum started by a guy named David Wilson. I don't know when he started it, in the 90s probably sometime. It's a kind of extraordinary project this guy has dedicated an enormous amount of time and effort and I'm sure money to. And what would you say it is, uh, Steve? It's incredible. It's like a... It's sort of like a storefront. You could walk right by it and not know what you're seeing. But when you go in there, it's a museum... That looks like a natural history museum, yeah. but it's wacky. It's, it's wacky. And yeah. and some of the stuff in there is real, and some of the stuff in there is not real. And it's yeah. hard to tell the difference because it's all presented straight-faced, straight-laced. Yeah. It's a very peculiar place. It's a kind of performance of a museum going on. Yes. It's like it's really it's, odd. It's beautiful. It's an incredible place. There's there's a gallery of all the dogs sent into space by the Soviets. <laughs> the paintings <laughs> of, all, of the many dogs. I mean it's that kind of thing. And I it's it's an amazing place. Anyway, it comes And they had up, miniatures like remember there's like a sculptures that a guy would do with a human hair. He would make sculptures on grains of rice. On grains of rice and on the eye of a needle. Those are all real, yeah, I think. That's real. But then some of it's not. As you'll hear, this extraordinary guest that we have coming up. Uh and this this gentleman is an award-winning New York Times best-selling author and prolific creator 
of prose, poetry, film, journalism, comics, song lyrics, drama. It's insane. His works include the legendary comic book series Sandman, The Sandman, and the novels Good Omens, Stardust, Anansi Boys, American Gods, Coraline, and The Graveyard Book. I mean, so many... It's ridiculous how much this yeah. guy has written and continues to write. He's also a goodwill ambassador for the UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, and professor in the arts at Bard College. And we have him here. We have him trapped here. <laughs> trapped. <laughs> in a closet. Yes, and we're going to force him to talk about all kinds of weird shit, but he's a bottomless fund of weird shit. Yeah, and if you're a fantasy fan mm-hmm. and a science fiction fan and just really a literary yeah. like nerd like we are, yeah. you know this guy's work. This guy's he's amazing. Huge. His latest book, What You Need to Be Warm, is available now, and it's quite wonderful. Every copy purchased helps refugees stay warm this winter. Please go out, buy a copy. It makes a great gift, too. We're very thrilled to have this gentleman on the Chinwag. Uh, we're big fans. Please welcome Mr. Neil Gaiman. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hello, sir. Thank you for joining us. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Where are you, sir? I'm in uh, Woodstock, New York. Ah, Nice. And do you reside in Woodstock currently? I do. I have since uh, the end of 2013. It's an interesting part of the world. Um, It's a very, very odd part of the world. I love that uh, it is this amazing tourist place. The tourists uh-huh. come out here. The tourists love it. And the tourists are here because of something that didn't ever happen. Here. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> That's right, isn't it? It didn't actually happen there. It happened somewhere else. What didn't happen there? Woodstock itself. Woodstock. Oh, oh, (laughs) (laughs) ever the famous Woodstock, Steve. Woodstock. Three days of peace and love. When I when I was when I was a a fourteen fifteen year old, I had a poster on my bedroom wall saying three days of peace and love, Woodstock," (laughs) and I thought that's it's that poster. I thought it's it's Snoopy's little yellow companion named after right. this festival. Oh, yeah. It's peace and love. And I got yeah. here. And uh, of course, you know, Nothing. you get here and you say, so uh, Woodstock yep. Festival and nice people look at you in a pitying way as they have said to every other human being. And they're like, yeah, that was in Bethel. It's about an hour and 15 minutes drive yep, from here. Just, yep, just a clever ruse. Just another, another ruse. Well, I can't Amazing. believe you You lived in Menominee, Wisconsin, which I grew up near there. That blows my mind because that seems like the middle of nowhere to me. And I went, and as a kid, I went to the House on the Rock, and and you talk about it in American Gods. It's just amazing to me. I'm not familiar with either Menominee or the House on the Rock. You're going to probably have to fill me in. So uh, if you read my novel, American Gods, Mm -hmm. you will find Menominee in there disguised as a town called Lakeside, but not particularly well disguised. I mean, I, I disguised it by just changing the name from Menominee <laughs> to Lakeside. Clever. Um, and you will find the house on the rock as the house on the rock. And what's wonderful about that is nobody believes that it's a real place. They all assume uh-huh. I must have made this thing up. Uh-huh. Um, well, it's real. <laughs> Menominee is a town on a lake. It's, uh, it was originally a logging town. These days it's a small university town. And I wound up there by accident. Um, I, I wanted a house that was somewhere between 45 minutes and an hour outside of the Twin Cities, because that was where my ex-wife's family lived. And I knew that as a writer, I am pathetically easy to distract. And I also knew that people who are not writers always assume that writers don't 
do anything. And they also <laughs> are fooled that's, by that's the fact true. that we are so willing to stop doing whatever we're doing. And, uh -huh. oh, you wanna, you're want you coming over. Let me make you coffee. Let me help you alphabetize the spice sure. rack. Let's walk around the garden. It's, you know. And so I just thought, okay, the only way I'm ever going to get anything done is if I'm far enough away from my uh -huh. wife's enormous extended family to that they will have to call first it will be yeah. a little bit of a schlep to come out there and there's nothing Jesus. else to do there but right there was nothing else to do in, in Menominee but and go right. to the house on the rock and the house on the <laughs> rock is one of these kind of weird i was saying is it like the winchester ghost house or whatever that thing is where it's all oh, sort of strange it's, <laughs> it's one of those places that has no reason to exist except that it does uh -huh. yeah. Much in and in that way, it's just like the Winchester Ghost House. Yeah. Um, the Winchester Ghost House at least has this sort of strange origin story of you know she was right. told by a medium that uh -huh. the, the the spirits of all the people killed by the Winchester rifle would not rest easily unless ah. there was hammering oh. going on and unless they were building ah. and. Which is a wonderful story. I don't yeah. know if it's true. I've also been told that she was experimenting with architectural things and building mm -hmm. techniques, and that's another mm -hmm. reason for things. But with the house on the rock, um, you're in Spring Green, Wisconsin, about three hours' drive away from Menominee, down much closer to Madison. And uh, Spring Green is famous as the home of Frank Lloyd Wright. Mm -hmm. And... Mm -hmm. The house on the rock is kind of Frank Lloyd wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to put it. <laughs> it's um, a man started building a house literally on an outcrop of rock. And what mm -hmm. he started building was essentially a 19, early 60s bachelor pad. Uh -huh. Like a like a makeout pad. It's, it's from, yeah, from the yeah. it's, it's like shack carpeting on the it's walls, shag and mirrored ceilings it's and stuff. That really? whole thing. Okay, and that's where it began. And he didn't even own the rock. He was just building his <laughs> his makeout pad. Sure, absolutely. And then people showed up and they said, "Can we see what you're doing?" And he said, "Sure, give me a quarter." And so he would charge them a quarter to come around, and pretty soon. He had an income. Uh -huh. A lot of those quarters were coming in. Yeah. And he started buying up the land around. And then pretty soon he started putting things that were more interesting and more weird. And he'd, there were, now it wasn't just the house on the rock. The house yeah. was just a little part of the thing. There were giant warehouses. He built the streets of yesteryear oh, yeah. in wow. one. He what? built okay. ah. a giant sea monster. He had... Uh -huh. Um, a whole workshop in which people were making fake things that were incredibly cool, like ancient music machines or... or so uh, all ersatz contraptions, none of it was sort of... You had people in a, in a fake workshop making fake gizmos. Um, but you also had... He was also buying up real gizmos. He uh -huh. was also doing real stuff. They, they have... Um, the largest carousel in the world is uh, really? in the house on the rock. It and did is, he build the large? He built this himself, or no? Yes, he built it himself. The Amazing. all of the animals. There are no horses on the ah. largest carousel in the world. There are wolves. Camels. There are absolutely there. Anything. <laughs> yeah. There's a griffin. There's ah, all awesome. the, There's That's lions. Great. Anything you could imagine. There's a sea serpent. There are knights in armor. There's everything, but no horses. The, the whole um, thing feels like a, like a life-size curiosity cabinet, like a wunderkammerin from like the early modern period uh -huh. or something. So you've got artificial things, but also like natural stuff and gizmos. It's really weird. I love it's it. bizarre. Have you been in the Museum of Jurassic Technology, Neil? Not for a long time, but yes. Yeah. And yeah. I, I loved, what I loved about that most was the same kind of feeling that I get wandering into the house on the rock which is i am in a frozen story uh-huh i am walking from story to story you're you're wandering the museum of jurassic technology and you're going okay this thing i'm looking at over here is real yes and yet 
over here, and I Matt. know that's real. I, I know yeah. enough about uh -huh. you know biology or whatever to know that yeah. the, this is real. <laughs> but over here, they've got a display, an incredibly convincing display about bats that can yes. fly through metal <laughs> using their sonar. Yes, the strange and invisible bat. Real. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Tra yeah. Bats that get trapped in metal but doors. Even, even better in that place, what I love are the things that don't work. Are the things that, like, every now and then you'll wander past a thing that's broken. And you don't know what it was. <laughs> like a diorama. Yeah, it'll, or it'll be in there and there's some sort of thing that looks like a microscope or an astrolabe or a who the hell knows what it is. And it looks, it's slightly broken and it's dark in there. The lights are off and it's, and it's not functioning anymore. And that's the stuff I love in there. Because it's, I find that place actually quite creepy. There's a really uncanny feeling in it that I can't quite describe. It's a, it looks a little bit, it's lit like a David Lynch movie in there mm. or something. And it has that same kind of creepy, uncanny. Liminal. Yeah, liminal. Exactly. The, the only place <laughs> yeah. where I've, I've been that is even more that thing mm. than the Museum of Jurassic Technology and the House on the Rock combined is a place of real things, sort of, which uh -huh. is Mona, the Museum of Old and New in Tasmania. Wow. And it's in Hobart, Tasmania. Uh-huh. And it exists underneath a house. It was built by a multimillionaire, possibly a billionaire. Um, and it's essentially a James Bond villain's lair carved into a cliff <laughs> filled with art. And it's, it's got all this art that you remember from the eighties and nineties, uh -huh. uh -huh. you know, here's the piss Christ. Here's the Madonna with the elephant dung. Oh, really? Um, and is these, that the these... idea? Did the guy go around collecting all these sort of like uh, peculiar pieces of art from the 80s and 90s that were sort of, is that he his has, uh, personal collection? He has fabulous taste in art. I mean that uh -huh. completely sincerely. I love his taste. Um, uh -huh. I love walking through the museum because it is a museum of old and new and uh -huh. um you get things in juxtaposition that break your brain my my favorite of which are two huge flat cabinets one of which contains what looks like 1950s or 1960s picnic cutlery and flatware uh -huh. and the one opposite it and they're obviously a, a set contains coins and then you go over and you look at this coin and you're going if i know anything about coins and i don't know much but i know <laughs> a little uh -huh. what i'm seeing here is possibly the finest coin collection in private hands on this planet those are incredibly perfect condition gold and and silver coins that are roman they're, they're uh -huh. greek they're ancient they're beautiful uh -huh. and and this is probably over there is seven dollars worth of, <laughs> of <laughs> plates and <laughs> over here is several million dollars worth of amazing coins and they're in juxtaposition uh -huh. and i love that somebody yeah. would do this. So strange. Paul, this is Paul's kind of place too. This totally. is my kind yeah. of place. And I'm it's making me now think of peculiar museums and places I've been in the world. So I, this is just I, I love it. All of these, as you say, Steve, well, they're not liminal because they're they're what they are. They're not really on the edge or or they're not pointless or something. They're not sort of non-spaces. There's a place in St. Petersburg, which is the Soviet Arctic Exploration Museum. Have you seen this? No. <laughs> oh, it is fantastic. And it's in this kind of domed, rotunda building that's sort of, I suppose it's 19th century. I don't think it's as old as some of the, it's not 18th century. And it's got all of these crazy, um, you know, sleds and all of these things from the period of kind of Soviet exploration. But the best part of it are these gigantic paintings of sort of Lenin standing with these guys pointing at a map 
and he's pointing at the Arctic Circle, and all these guys are kind of looking at it. They're all astonished that Lenin is saying, we are going to go there. You know, and it's all this kind of, fa and these fantastically crazy paintings, these kind of Soviet soldiers fighting polar bears and stuff. And it all looks like something I would have made up when I was 12. I mean, it all just looks, it looks absolutely crazy. And kind of walrus tusks and then sort of strange skeletal remains of things and crazy uniforms and stuff. And it all seems like it's made up in some way. It's not, but it feels like something I imagined or had in a dream when I was a kid. It's fantastic. It's a yeah. great place what, if you ever What's there. the weirdest thing that's ever happened to you in a museum? Because I go, I have a little one. Please tell me. I'm going to think about it, Steve. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'll think. So <laughs> I was in China. I was in Western China in Xinjiang province. I was in a museum um, where I was looking at um actually i'm not just in case i could get somebody into trouble i'm not going to say why i went to this particular museum because <laughs> okay. there was a specific thing i was going to look at but i'm going around the museum and i'm being treated kind of as a bit of a vip i'm i'm a westerner i'm an author i'm getting slightly vip treatment it's kind of cool um <laughs> and i'm the best part of that is i'm getting to talk to one of the museum curators, um, she's showing me stuff that is fascinating to me that there's 2000 year old silk mm. with, with patterns on it. And the patterns were being made for Rome mm. and they were actually making silk stuff to order for Rome that would then get shipped to Rome. And they, and what was amazing looking at this pattern was going, oh, this is being done by, it's actually meant to be a griffin, ah, but oh. whoever's drawing it doesn't know what a ah. griffin looks like, but they, they're working for a picture. So yeah, that was, that was fascinating. And then. That is fascinating. And then the director of the museum uh, has me come in to their office and they give me a glass, a, a cup of tea beautiful green tea on beautiful China. And they explained to me that um, they have a bargain for me <laughs> because they're going to sell me stuff from the museum. Really? They have amazing um, Tang Dynasty stuff <laughs> that they will sell me at rock bottom prices because they really need the money. Wow. And I say... <laughs> so sounds uh, illegal. But, but, but you <laughs> do know that it's illegal yeah. for yeah. a for a foreigner to take Tang Dynasty stuff sure. to buy it or to take it out of China. And they say, oh, that's where we're brilliant. We will give you a certificate that says it's forged. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, so the, it says the object is a fake. The ob okay. Wow. And I'm going, you know, <laughs> my brain has just broken in that way that they do because you are obviously selling me a fake uh-huh right and you're Exposing. selling me fake antiques that you are now going to give me a certificate that <laughs> says it's, fake. it's a fake <laughs> and I, that's fantastic that i thank fantastic. them very kindly for the honor but <laughs> amazing Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
Well, you're doing some theater stuff in a way I now know, because we say. see you're doing Dickens soon, we gather from. <laughs> You've done it before and you're going to do it again. Christmas I'm Carol. intrigued by this. I have to say, the photographs I've seen, you you look like him. You, yeah, you, you do. Seem, you really do. It's it's kind of uncanny. Uh, it's, I it's think all you have to be is male of a certain age, faintly mm. dark-haired, and no. wearing a fabulous fake beard. <laughs> no. And, and you can no, no, disappear no, into I, the I'm a professional. I'm a professional. I think you actually do sort of look like him. Something about your features, I think, look like him. The Dickens thing, I was simply approached by a uh, journalist and author named Molly Oldfield, who was working with New York's Public Library. And she said, uh, there is this Dickens, um, it, it, it's the performance copy uh -huh. yeah. of Dickens's Christmas Carol. He, mm. Dickens, back when uh, Dickens wasn't making any money in America mm -hmm. because all of his books were pirated in America mm -hmm. because of copyright, mm. he thought there has to be a way to get some of that money out of Americans. <laughs> so he came over here. <laughs> And did reading tours, and yeah. people would line up to get into theaters to hear him. And sometimes he'd do, uh, you know, he did bits of Oliver, he did yeah. bits of Oliver Twist, he did bits of different stories. But one of his crowd-pleasing things was doing the whole of A Christmas uh -huh. Carol uh -huh. in this edited version. And she said, New York Public Library owns this version. They oh have it God. here. Wow. Would you do it? And I said, if I can have a top hat and a beard. Ah, I was going to say, were you like, only if I can dress up in the right way. Exactly. That was my immediate thing. And What's they were the like, point okay. otherwise? <laughs> so I got out there and I did it and I loved it. Yeah. And it was such a delight. And I felt like I learned all this stuff about the text that uh -huh. I couldn't have known yes. Yes. if I just read it. When I, yes. when I read it, there were things in there that really puzzled me. I, I remember looking at it and going, why, you know, he's, he's lost lots of these famous lines. Oh, and they're just interesting. gone. Oh. Whereas he's kept this scene with Scrooge's nephew and his plump wife. <laughs> and crucial scene why I, i've yeah. never seen this adapted anywhere why would you possibly put this in house how bizarre yeah he must have known what he was doing and you go and and the amount of annotations and edits and things he's done in different pens over the years on this this was a a, a darwinian document oh interesting really really you know, he's working to the crowds yeah. and what happened when i read it was I got to the place where the nephew and his plump wife are, uh, and the audience needed uh, to laugh so badly. Right. Uh, the tension uh, had been building, and now uh, here was this scene, and they could laugh at it, and I'd never heard happy uh -huh. laughter from an audience like I heard at uh -huh. that scene. Amazing. They felt so good, and it's like, oh, you knew what you were doing. Yes. You built yeah. this thing so well and so carefully. Yeah. Well, he was a masterful performer, apparently. I mean, he was quite an actor. He, he would was... do amateur theatricals with Wilkie Collins and stuff, yeah. right? Didn't they sort of do plays in his living room with his family? And he would do, he loved oh, really? sort of amateur theater. I think so, he right? He loved amateur um, theater. Yeah. He loved amateur conjuring. Yes. Um, he also loved booze. <laughs> and um, okay. a lot of actors I, do, a lot of writers uh, do, I imagine too. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to say. Coin of the realm. His, uh, <laughs> his, his, you know, he had this amazing sort of American routine where he would begin. <laughs> He, you know, his, his lunch, no breakfast, but then oh, you, your lunch you is basically brandy with an egg beaten into it <laughs> and some cream. Wow. And oh. then before you go on stage, you have a pint of champagne. Jesus uh, Christ. Really? Like, what? Listen, listen, I've worked with some guys. I have. And it's quite astonishing like, with the capacity some guys have. Uh, that's astonishing. Are you going to dish of, some dirt on some fa famous no, actors? No, 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 so, no. Okay. But I'm thinking about the pint of champagne and the egg and the brandy might be pretty good. For, for me, I might try it. Well, it kind of did him in, didn't it? I mean, it kind of wore him out doing this stuff, didn't it? I, I mean, it, yeah, I mean, he definitely died 
prematurely which yeah. bits of his life wore him out. Oh yeah, more than it's kind of hard to say. Um, yeah. I think the the performances were definitely part of it because they definitely took their toll. But then Dickens was also somebody who was um, he was an insomniac, oh. and he would walk. 15, 20, 30 miles a night. Really? Oh. He'd just go out for these amazing long walks through, through oh, London at night. And he would plot stories and he would see things and he would encounter things. And there's part of me that goes, well, you know, I don't know how long you can run a body walking yeah. 30 miles a yeah. night. <laughs> um, yeah, really. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's interesting. The beginning of that great, the old curiosity shop opens with a man talking about wandering London at night. And he has the whole encounter and he finds little Nell and all that stuff. I didn't realize that was kind of autobiographical, sort of walking at night. Fascinating. That was absolutely Dickens. He Amazing. was he was a night walker. Can you I just it's a Christmas carol. I just what is I I if there's a tradition in Britain of ghost stories at Christmas. Am I yes. right? You are absolutely right. And it's a fascinating one because I think Americans, even though they love a Christmas carol, I don't think we think of it as a, I mean, it's a ghost story, but I don't know, Steve, right? I mean, nobody no, goes I like- No, I think growing up, I didn't think of it as a ghost no, story, even though I, it obviously don't, is. But of course, yeah. it's one of the greatest ghost stories yeah. ever written. What is, but what I love, the no, I, I have a feeling I know maybe why, but could you talk about why ghost stories at Christmas in England? I can definitely talk about the fact that the ghost story tradition at Christmas um, is a tradition of the nights are long. Mm -hmm. You are huddled inside. Um, you are feasting. Mm -hmm. It's you're having, and it's a Christmas feast at a time when food is possibly. Um, harder to come by because it's the middle of winter and there isn't as much food, but now mm -hmm. you're, you're all going to feast to celebrate the fact that the longest day has passed and uh, the shortest day, the longest night has passed. Mm -hmm. And now you're in, in that other world. And it's a, it is a liminal time to use that word again. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a time where the tradition of telling stories against the darkness outside mm -hmm. springs up. And some great stories, including some other ones by Dickens, are mm -hmm. Christmassy and ghosty. Um, and you get the feeling that the tradition of the British ghost story is something that's meant to scare, mm -hmm. it's meant to creep out. What Dickens does actually does scare. Um, people forget that, that yeah. there are some very creepy moments yeah. in The Christmas Carol, including, you know, Marley's appearance at the beginning. Mm. Um, and of course, including that final yeah. encounter with the, the ghost of Christmas yet to come and so, Scrooge's yeah, encounter with the the people dividing his property. After yes. his death. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, people forget how creepy it is. They they remember um merry old Scrooge. They remember yeah. Scrooge goes from a big grumpy bar humbug <laughs> and yeah. then you boy, yeah. what day is this? <laughs> Why sir, right. it's Christmas Day. Do you remember yeah. that enormous yeah. turkey? Not as big Go, as me. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Go buy me that giant turkey. Right on it, sir. Yeah. Ho ho ho. And there was never a person who wasn't yeah. as lovely as Scrooge. <laughs> and that's what people remember and they forget yeah. the darkness. I'm sorry, forget... when I was in uh China, my, my ex-wife is Chinese and she grew up during the Cultural Revolution. And she grew up in Shanghai, and they were banned from reading all this Western stuff. But interestingly, they were allowed to read Dickens. And the oh. logic was that Dickens was exposing the evil underbelly uh, of capitalism. Yeah. Sure. You know, with these sort of like dark representations of industrial Victorian yeah. periods. So they could read that stuff. And then I thought, I was just reading Orwell recently, who said, no, that's not Dickens at all. Dickens is all about the character, like the the shit that goes wrong in the story is not about the system of capitalism, at least according to Orwell. It's because Scrooge is a dick 
or you know what <laughs> just some other character it's, yeah that it, that's it's that's not, what he thought just, uh-huh. yeah i th- i think with dickens you've got both and i think okay. the joy and the genius of dickens is that he's often at his best when he's grumpy about a real thing when mm-hmm. there's something going on in society that is upsetting him bleak house for me is his masterpiece mm-hmm. and the fury at um the legal system mm-hmm. that was mm-hmm. going on, the court of chancery yeah. Yeah. and what it does. And the idea that you have essentially a specific court to deal with wills and inheritances that is more or less designed to just run forever yeah. until that will and inheritance have all been eaten by lawyers, at which point there's no point because nobody's fighting over anything anymore anyway. That's you know, thing. that's really in there. And that is that is one of the driving mm. forces. And it's and it's there. But he's also absolutely in there with the characters, in there mm. with Lord and Lady Deadlock, in there, you know, watching characters explode of spontaneous. I was gonna human say, and the guy <laughs> explodes in that one. It's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, the guy blows up. That's always good. Well, your characters often have a kind of uh, Paul and I are really interested in in trickster gods, and your American gods is really interested in this. And I'm interested in in uh, the way in which the old gods and the non-Christian pagan gods have these kind of amoral characters. And you're sort of I don't know if you're celebrating them, but you're obviously you you're obviously interested in developing and tracking them. And is it? Do you think it's it's bad that um, sort of Christians have been taught a version of religion where there are no tricksters or very few tricksters. Like, is it better to understand that, uh, to have a religion where there's some amoral, you know, troublemakers? Does this well, make I sense? Get, I get, That's absolutely. I get fascinated by the way that Christianity only bears a very loose relationship to the thing in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Mm. I mean, I love the fact that you were talking about a moral God. But if you read the Bible, God isn't moral. God he's does not in there. appalling, he's, he's, terrible he's things he's on, sort a, of insane. on an absolute, on, on a very regular basis. God is, 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 you cannot justify anything that God does in there. Or you can justify some of the things, but and the only person who gets to talk to God directly and get an answer is Job. Mm-hmm. who's a really nice, good guy, yeah. and who God agrees with Satan that maybe the reason why he's such a nice guy and he's God's favorite is because God's so nice to him, so God's going to be mean to him and kill off everything that he loves and destroy everything. And finally, he's, you know, his, his family is gone, his property is gone, he's covered in boils, <laughs> And he gets to go, why? And then God appears to him and said, no, you don't get any answers. <laughs> I mean, I'm God. You, you, you know that? Were you there when I did the stars? You weren't there. No, you weren't. <laughs> okay, let's talk about ostriches. Can you make an ostrich? No, you can't. <laughs> I can make an ostrich. You can't make an ostrich. So I'll tell you what, yeah. you don't get any answers. And that's, that is, that's the nearest you actually get. Um, and... The other thing that I love about the Bible is there isn't actually, you know, we, we talk about the Bible as if it is monotheistic. Uh-huh. We talk about the Bible as if there is only one God. Mm-hmm. But you read the Bible, there are lots of gods. Mm. He's a, just, it's just our one is a jealous God and says you can't have any other gods. There's no particular implication, at least in the Old Testament, that there is only one God, that there's nobody else. All these other gods aren't gods. They're out there. They're being gods. They just, uh, you know, it's like when, when Moses goes and confronts Pharaoh's magicians, they can turn sticks into snakes. It's just he can turn his stick into a snake that's bigger, that eats theirs. <laughs> so he's more powerful. Uh-huh. Um, and I love the fact that there is, you do tend to feel that the God of the Old Testament in particular um, is a God that 
you assume that you know because of the stories. Yeah. And then when you get in there, um, it's so weird. Yeah. Super and it's weird. not what it yeah. is. And you keep getting this thing of, but that's not what the Bible says. Mm -hmm. My, my favorite one of which is the right at the beginning, it's Adam and Eve where you say to people, so uh, tell me why were Adam and Eve thrown out of the garden of Eden? And most people will explain to you it's because they disobeyed God and they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So he threw them out. And you go, yes, absolutely. You know, that's not what it says in the Bible. <laughs> and people will go, well, it is. And you go, no, it actually isn't. What it says in the Bible is that because they'd broken his rule and they'd eaten from the tree of the knowledge, fruit to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, God was scared that they uh. would eat from the tree of life and live forever like gods. And in order to prevent that from happening, uh, he threw them out. There are two different trees. There's the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and there's the uh -huh. tree of life. And the tree of life obviously has a fruit that conveys immortality. Immortality. And God wasn't going to have that, so he throws them out. And I just love the fact that's not in the stories. It's there in the Bible. It just doesn't fit the stories. So, so they'll have the wisdom to want sort of immortality, transcendence, and all this kind of, uh-huh. I don't, I didn't remember that at all. I, I'm going to have to go back and reread Genesis. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so I love tricksters. I love pantheons. Um, I mean, you know, if you read my, my Norse mythology, um, mm -hmm. book, I'm obviously a sucker for, for Loki. Yeah. Um, great. Uh, who, he's a great trickster. He is. He's a glorious trickster and he's a wonderful example of somebody who sort of starts off mischievous and troublesome, but will always get you out of the trouble that he gets you into. And then by the end, he's just the bad guy. <laughs> he's gone one step too far. The 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 whole boulder, death of boulder thing. It's like, okay, you just put yourself beyond the pale. You are on the outside. You're not a trickster anymore. You're a monster. And now things are gonna get dark. And I love, I love that. I love the, the way that the sense of fun and glorious silliness of the Norse stories just as you get incrementally closer to the idea of Ragnarok, uh -huh. it gets darker and colder and more dangerous. Yeah, that that's uh, your focus on myth um, is fascinating to me because the like a lot of these myths, whether it's Chinese or it's Norse, um, or or whether it's you know out of the the Greek tradition, it's sort of like there's order and then there's going to be terrible chaos and then there's going to it's going to happen again like there's going to be a cycle of some kind and it seems like um your work is really in that area where you have to get comfortable with chaos and some dionysian elements and some scary stuff and even your children's my son and i went to see Coraline, and it scared the pants off us and I, in a, in the good way and i wonder yeah. do you have any kind of do you feel like it's healthy for kids important, to get important some important for children yeah, to get scared yeah. basically yeah Absolutely. to scare the crap out of kids yeah <laughs> i i i would never apologize <laughs> for Caroline. i'm so proud oh, of making something yeah, scary great, yeah. Yeah. no it's fantastic um, i i'd love to know who was more scared by it, you or your son he he was scared i was scared by the eyes as like buttons and he was freaked out at the idea of imposter parents he was like whoa uh -huh. that's fucking that's scary <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> uh, I, I used to scare myself with that as a kid. I'd be sitting there in school thinking, what if I get home and my parents have left? Mm -hmm. They just went away for some reason. And I get home and the house is empty. And what would I do? How would I yeah. live if, if they weren't there? And then when I finished scaring myself with that idea, I go, okay, so what if I get home and my parents have left? but new parents have moved in <laughs> who look just like just them. <laughs> How would I know? And that, that, you know, you could really scare yourself properly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you start getting deep and existential. Yeah. So I love, uh, I love the idea of just letting kids be scared. 
Mm-hmm. I think I think horror in fiction, I think horror in ghost stories, I think all of that kind of stuff is tremendously healthy because it's like a little walk into the darkness uh-huh. where you can still see the light and you can still head back. Uh-huh. And nice. at the end of any ghost story, you get to remind yourself that you're still alive. Uh-huh. And it's something that we forget uh-huh. day in, day out. Hey, look at me, I'm alive. I get to do this magic, miraculous thing of going around and thinking and feeling. And, and then you hear a ghost story and you go, whoa, look at me, I'm here. <laughs> I made it through that thing. <laughs> and we talk about that a lot, that it's a kind of rehearsal too for things, right, Steve? I mean, sort of horror yeah. and scary things are a kind of rehearsal for awful things unknowingly too as a kid it's almost like right i mean there's a kind of yeah you might not you might not encounter ghosts but you are going to encounter pain and suffering and threats and predators and so some people think of horror as a kind of threat preparation but i like this idea too that that Mm. neil's saying it also just makes you feel alive and grateful to be alive and also the the ones that are interesting too are the, that the there's not just that the world is dangerous out there, but there's stuff in you that's dangerous. Like there's mm-hmm. stuff inside you that's dangerous. I find that very interesting. When yeah. I was a kid, I thought I was a coward. And I thought I was a coward because I was scared of things. Uh-huh. And I thought that brave meant you weren't scared of things. And then as I grew older, I realized actually, if you're not scared, you're not brave. You're just not scared. Um, it, 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 I put the story into the novel of Caroline, into the book, but it, it, it happened to me. I was with my two kids. They were aged about seven and nine. Um, I'm walking around the house. My wife and we've just moved to America. I do not have a driver's license yet. We only have one car. She's gone to a wedding in Boston, leaving me behind. I go for a walk with the kids around the grounds, and I tread on an underground yellow jacket nest. Mm. Oh, yellow God. jackets are like these tiny, mm-hmm. mean, vicious <clears throat> wasps, and suddenly the air is full of them. And I have two kids, and I'm being stung, And I just shout at the kids to run away. And I stay where I am Mm. because I knew that if we'd all run, they would have followed. But if the kids run, then they'll sting me. Mm. And my brain is not going, you are being brave. My brain is going, this is the only thing you are going to do. You are going to (laughs) shout at your kids. You're going to stay here. And, you know, I remember we got into the bath together all of us kids and counted well the kids and me and we counted our stings afterwards and i had 39 stings oh my god that's they had one each oh nice you survived having this conversation with the kids where i'm like hey (laughs) you know if you wanted if anything happened to an adult you were with, do you know what what number you would call if there was an emergency? You go, that's right, nine one one. And do you know our address here? You know, that anyway, I was okay. Wow. But that's... then an hour later, I've I've put you know stuff on all of the stings. I put my clothes back on, and I realized that my glasses fell off when I was shaking my head mm. and running and. If I go back now, I'll be able to find where my glasses fell off. If I wait until tomorrow, Ah. I won't. I won't actually be able to find that place. This is in the middle of woods. I don't really know the woods around the house, but so I head back and I was terrified. Mm. And I went back and I got my glasses. There weren't actually any yellow jackets left when I... Uh-huh. Got my glasses, but going and getting my glasses, that was brave. Uh, yeah. Because every so. cell in my body said, You are crazy. You have to not do this. Please, you've <laughs> just gone through hell and now you're going back. And I'm like, No, I got to get my glasses. And I thought about that. And I, I was working on Caroline at the time. And I thought, Okay, so 
That first time with the yellow jacket attack, I wasn't being brave. The second time was being brave. <sighs> being brave is when you're absolutely scared and you do the right thing you anyway. Do you do uh, it anyway. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. You do what you have to do. And it's I thought, if I get that into my book, then I can teach kids something. I can teach adults something. I can tell something important to the world. Do, do, you, do you yourself believe in the existence of ghosts? I or was going to ask, have you had is it more sort of? Metaphor or, you know, symbolic? I am an author. As such, I am absolutely capable of believing what implicitly and <laughs> utterly whatever it is that I am writing on, on levels that would astonish you. So it's like, do I believe in ghosts? Yeah, if I'm writing ghosts, I absolutely yeah, uh, believe in ghosts. I believe in, I just as I believed absolutely utterly in the Norse gods while I was writing mm -hmm. um, <laughs> Norse mythology. Um, I, in terms of, do I actually believe that dead people show up? Depends if you're talking to me in the daylight uh -huh. <laughs> or if I got caught on a foggy night taking a shortcut through a graveyard. Mm -hmm. Um <laughs> You know, I am perfectly capable of believing sensible things yeah. in sensible times. And I have the kind of imagination that can scare myself silly uh, and that's... convince myself of absolutely impossible things the moment I need to. And I'm just glad that I, I use this power mostly for good. That's mostly, the, that's mostly, <laughs> mostly. That, that's where there's an interesting overlap with writers and actors to me sometimes. And why I think you are a good actor and why some writers can be good actors. That kind of almost method writing thing where you sort of, mm -hmm. you convince yourself of the thing is fascinating. And it's, it's wonderful. Because in the same way, I mean, it's like I will absolutely 100% believe whatever the hell it is I'm supposed to do. And not only believe it, I'll generate more belief. I'll generate memories about things. I'll generate, it's, it's fascinating to do. So I often think that there's an interesting overlap with the two things. One of the things that both actors and writers do that fascinates me is if you, act, if you catch either of them, either a writer or, or an actor in perhaps a coffee shop where one is either learning lines or mm -hmm. going through lines and one of them is writing a play. Creating You'll see the most yeah. amazing facial expressions. Yes, <laughs> yes, and, yes. You know, I, yes. I do all of the facial expressions of everybody I'm writing while I'm there. And and you can I'm, tell in your dialogue that you are. You can tell that you've got, you know, that you are living the characters, I have yeah. to say. Yeah. And if you don't, what's the point? I, I love, um, you know, that it's the music of the dialogue and it's the way that people talk. And if you can get, do it really well, sometimes you can write dialogue that does two or even three things at the same time. It can be everything that is said can be on the page and then everything that is unsaid can be on the page as well. Um, you know, you can, you can have so much fun doing that stuff. And it's what I love about good actors is, is good actors will play the subtext. They'll say the words and then they can mean something a hundred percent the opposite. Yeah. Do you have to get it in your body in order for it to be an authentic communication to the audience? You know what I mean? Is that why you're sort of making the faces and you have to do the emotions in some way in the body? Yeah, I mean, there's an interesting way that it's like somebody was asking me about this recently because that, and I keep saying them. So much of it starts with me in my mouth and around my mouth, where the words are sort of changing the shape of the mouth, and it's literally also like eating too in some way. Oh. I'm 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 digesting things in some way, so it is sort of like getting it into into the into the body. But it's peculiar how much of it. Is words in my mouth are affecting gustatory acting? That's yeah, it is gustatory Giamatti. acting. <laughs> gustatory, the gustatory method, the Giamatti gustatory method. But but I would imagine it's a similar thing. I mean, it's 
it's coming out of your body. I'm having to consume it and get yeah. it into my body, but it's coming out of your body. You're like yeah. a bird vomiting it up into my little mouth. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I am the mama bird. You are. I'm the pre-masticated worm of my, of my fiction. <laughs> I yes. see the animation now. <laughs> but yes, I can too. But it but it but that is but that is what it is. I mean, I do find a fascinating connection between the two. And it's always, you know, the most important person to me when I do stuff is the writer. If the writer's around, it's really nice to be able to spend time with the writer. Mm -hmm. um, oh, let me do a plug. Let me plug. I've got a book out right now called yes. What You Need to Be Warm. It's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, it's lovely. It's great. Thank you. And I love I, I will never see a penny from it. I have not seen a yep. penny from it. Will never see a penny from it. All income that I would ever possibly get from it will go and has gone to refugees and to the United Nations High Commission on Refugees to basically keep people warm. That's excellent. Um, and I'm so cool with that. I One of the reasons why I'm so committed to refugees was going out to Jordan in 2014 and talking to Syrian refugees and realizing that they were us. You know, the guy I'm talking to ran a corner shop. The next guy I'm talking to was a dentist. And his, his you know, the next guy worked in a car showroom. Mm -hmm. And these are people who assumed that life was a normal thing and that you live your normal life and you get born and you go to school and you go to college and you get your job and you have your kids and you buy a house and and all of a sudden the tanks rumble through your village and the tanks destroy the water pipes underneath the road because they're really heavy and now your town doesn't have any water and some of the power supply is disrupted and the farmers won't go into the fields because they're mined. So you're running out of food and the only water you've got is from the swamp and you let it sit for days until it's kind of clear and you pour it off and you boil it, but it's still making everybody sick. And somewhere in there you pick up your babies and you go, I, we, it's 800 miles to a refugee camp and it's, we're going to have to cross deserts and we may die and it's better than this. And mm. they go. And realizing what it takes to get people to leave their, let alone, you know, their, their country, let alone their village, let alone their area. Um, and realizing that all most refugees want to do is go home. They don't want to invade your country. They mm -hmm. don't want to live there. They want to go home. And realize, I, I, it was this sudden realization of this is, this civilization shit is really fragile. Really mm -hmm. fragile. Very I thought it was collapses. so tough. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. it's not. No. It's, you can blow it away. Well, on that note of cheerful, sorry, no, no, Charles Dickens, ladies and gentlemen. But your book is really heartwarming. Like it's this sad facts are in the background, but the book is really a sweet set of stories that immigrants have told about being warm and what does it take to be warm. It's a beautiful poem. So, people should get this book because it really helps immigrants directly. So, get out there and buy that book. Get that book. And thank you for, for uh, being so generous with your time. Thank you so much, sir. That was so much fun, guys. Good. I'm glad. And it was such a pleasure to have you. Yeah. I'm, we're great fans, and it was really yeah. a treat for you to take all this time. Thank you so much. That thank was you, so Neil. Much fun. Thank you. Bye-bye. Oh, my stars, Steve. My stars and stripes, we have some exciting news. Shall we tell them? We should reveal that Shinwag is hitting the road again and going on a West Coast tour. Yes, that's right. If you missed us in your fair city, truly, friends, don't fret, don't fear, don't have a panic attack. <laughs> Do not panic. We will be recording live Chinwags in May in Los Angeles, Portland, and Seattle. Yes, in L.A., we'll be at Dynasty Typewriter 
on May 14th. You can go to chinwagpod.fm slash Los Angeles for tickets. And on May 16th, we're going to be in Portland at Revolution Hall. For those tickets, go to chinwag.fm slash Portland. And we'll be at Town Hall, the great town hall in Seattle on May 17th. For tickets to that, go to chinwagpod.fm slash Seattle. You do not want to miss this. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be mighty, mighty. So get your tickets at chinwagpod.fm and we will see you there. Come on out, waggers. Come out, waggers. Come out. (laughs) Come out of hiding. (laughs) Have you ever wondered why we call French fries French fries? Or why something is the greatest thing since sliced bread? There are answers to those questions. Everything Everywhere Daily is a podcast for curious people who want to learn more about the world around them. Every day, you'll learn something new about things you never knew you didn't know. Subjects include history, science, geography, mathematics, and culture. If you're a curious person and want to learn more about the world you live in, just subscribe to Everything Everywhere Daily wherever you cast your pod. Chinwag is a production of Treefort Media and Touchy Feely Films. Hosted and executive produced by Paul Giamatti and Stephen Asma. Executive producers for Tree Fort are Kelly Garner and Lisa Ammerman. Dan Carey is executive producer for Touchy Feely. Our series producer is Rachel Whitley Bernstein. Original theme music by Luke Topp, with additional music by Via Mardot. Oscar Guido is our executive in charge of production. Tom Monahan is head of audio for Tree Fort. Animation created by Alex Sokol. Editing and mixing by Jeff Neal. Lastly, for more information, go to chinwagpod.fm and find us on Instagram or TikTok at chinwagpod or on Twitter at chinwag underscore pod.